So recently, um, I was reading a book. It had one of the best titles ever. It's called The Road Less Stupid, okay? Such a fantastic title. And the author starts off by saying that smart people do dumb things. Now, maybe you've seen this true, not in your life, but in other people's lives. You've seen it in other people's lives. And so the author said, he asked this great question. He said, how much money would you have right now if you could go back and undo three financial decisions? Okay, think for a moment. Some of you are like, man, I'm like six figures. <laughs> like, you know, there was this house that I shouldn't have got, and there was this car. And I mean, so think about it. Can you think three financial decisions that you've made that if you could go back and undo them, that your life would be better? And we all could. I mean, we can all think of those. Maybe, maybe it's a decision with school. Maybe it's a, a house or a car. Maybe it's a relationship and you, you bought something you shouldn't have. Maybe you believe somebody that you shouldn't have believed. You know, maybe you just knew that this was not a pyramid scheme. You knew it wasn't a pyramid scheme and you bought in, but it was for sure not a pyramid scheme. And then it was. But you can't go back and undo it. And that's the thing about money. But we actually can go forward and change. And this is what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about how to be rich. Now, here's the thing about being rich, is that if I ask for a show of hands, who in here is rich, most of us would say, not me. Because being rich is about the things that we don't have. Being rich is about the vacation that we want to take. Maybe for you, being rich is, well, I'm not rich because I have bills that I can't afford to pay. Maybe being rich is I'm just not able to get out of just this pile of debt that I have. And so being rich, often for many of us, is somebody else. It's somebody else's life. It's somebody else's life who went really well. It's somebody else's investment portfolio that just went really well. It's somebody else who bought the house at the exact right time, at the exact moment, and gotten the perfect interest rate, but you didn't. And so being rich is somebody else. And the reason I know that you think it's somebody else is because that's what studies show. Gallup did a study one time, and they asked people, what does it mean to be rich? And the average answer was making double what I make. So most people think, well, being rich is making more than I make. But here's the thing. I have great news for you. If you're sitting here today, if you're watching here today, you are rich. Here's why. If you are sitting in this room, if you're watching this today, if you make more than $10,000 a year, that puts you in the 50% of the wealthiest people on the planet. You're part of the 50% of the wealthy. Like, look at that. Look at you. If you make six figures, you are part of the top 10% of the wealthiest people on the planet. And yet, in our pursuit of being rich and getting more and amassing more, we actually miss out on a whole lot of things. We actually miss out on relationships. We miss out on enjoying things. Most of us don't really know how to enjoy anything. We miss out on enjoying the things that we have. In fact, the wealthier you are, studies show you tend to be a little bit more miserable than everybody else. You tend to have more debt than everybody else, especially credit card debt. Did you know, on average, who has the most credit card debt? People over 75. People over 75. The next group is 45 to 55 we chase after things? I mean, think for a moment, if you have credit card debt, do you know why? Can you like point to things in your house that you have? A lot of times, we can. A lot of times we go, well, 
I don't know, all of a sudden I just had this, I just had this bill. And we chase after things. And many times, instead of us controlling our money, our money ends up controlling us. And so this is why on our digital connect card, and it's gonna be up on the screen as well, starting in January, we're gonna have a class for Financial Peace University. Because maybe for you, you go, man, I'm in debt. I don't know how to make a budget. No one ever taught me how to make a budget. I don't know how to control my finances. My finances control me. And this is just an opportunity for you to learn how to handle your finances in a godly way. And so if you scan that, if you sign up for it now, we'll just send you information. You're not committed to it, don't worry. Like, but we for sure, this was a huge help for us in our marriage. This got Katie and I on the same page financially years ago. It was a massive, massive help. But the thing is, at the end of the day, when it comes to our money, our financial decisions, typically, and the reason we go into debt and the reason we buy anything and the reason we go on vacation, typically, is to simply be content. We just want to enjoy something. We just want to be content. Now, many of us, though, when it comes to contentment, and since it's the holidays coming up, you know, we need to talk about contentment. We need lessons in it. But many of us, when it comes to contentment as adults, we're kind of like little kids when it comes to contentment. We're not actually very good at it. Because again, you walk through life and you wish that you had somebody else's marriage, you wish you had somebody else's you know, time, you wish you had somebody else's health, somebody else's you know, finances, somebody else's career. We're not very good at being content. And I remember when our kids were younger at Christmas, so we have five kids and, and we would take them out to you know, go shopping for their siblings. And so I would always take our four boys out to shop for their older sister, Ava. And so as we're walking through the store, inevitably, you know, as, as we're, you know, I, we're walking through trying to find, you know, hey, do we get this for Ava? What do you think about this? We're walking through and the boys are like, hey, dad, is that on my list? Like, that's on, that's on my list, right? Like, when you bring Ava to, to shop for me, make sure she knows that that's on my list. Now, I would love to, I would love to say, you know, that they learned that from their friends, commercials, their grandparents, but they learned it from watching me. Just like you learned it from watching other people and your kids are as content as you are typically. Our problem is, is we don't know how to be content. And that's part of what it takes to be rich. Now you may wonder, what does money and being content and being rich have to do with being an irresistible church? Like if this whole series is about being an irresistible church, here's why. Because what if one of the most countercultural things that we could do as a church is to be generous and to be content in our culture. Like when we did our trunk or treat, one of the number one questions we got as people drove up the driveway was, is this free? Is this free? In fact, there was someone in our church who came to me and said, hey, you know, my, my in-laws were like, so how much does it cost to go? And she was like, well, it's free. And she said, Josh, my in-laws looked at me and goes, why would your church just give stuff away? Now think about the opportunity that comes from that. Because as we do the Christmas carol, we're asking people, instead of buying a ticket and paying us, to give money to the Rehoboth Food Pantry, to bless another organization. When Christmas carol tickets are like really expensive in other places, just an opportunity, what does that do? That, people go, well, so you don't want anything? No, we, we just want you to come and have a great time. Like, as that lowers defenses, do you see what generosity in a culture that is stingy and me, 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 do you see what generosity can do? The irresistibleness, the generosity, and the opportunity for us to say, hey, 
we actually don't want something from you. We want something for you because that's what God wants. God has something for you and the opportunity that can come from that. And, and so the writers of the New Testament, they talk about generosity in a way that says God wants so much more for you than what you do. And Paul writes this in Timothy. And remember, as he's writing this, Timothy is in Ephesus, which is one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient world. It's one of the wealthiest cities. And he writes to them and says, this is how you're, to, you're supposed to be rich. This is how to be a, a rich Christian. And, and do you have everything you want? No, maybe not. Do you think, you know what? Content for me would just be one more zero. But yet, for whatever reason, God said, this is the place that you're in, and here's how to be content with this. And so Paul writes this. He says, teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. And from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Now, if you remember all the way back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 when we started in September, this is basically how Paul started this letter, by talking about the, the false teachers that are coming into the church. Now, he never says what they're teaching. In other letters, when Paul calls out false teachers, he says what they're teaching. But he doesn't say what it is here. We can assume that it has something to do with money because of how he's led up to this point. But he says all the things that our chasing after money does. Look at what it does. It creates unhealthy disputes. Have you ever had an unhealthy dispute about money with anybody? Like in the last day, have you ever had an argument about money? Yes. You've had an argument about money. Has money ever led to envy, quarreling, slander, suspicions? Have you ever been suspicious when it's come to money? There's no way that this deal could be that. What, what are you really selling? Like, how much is this really going to cost? We don't trust anybody when it comes to money. We don't even trust people we're related to when it comes to money. And so Paul says, look at all the things that money does. And yet, we're like, give me more of that money. <laughs> we chase after it. And, and we're, we fall into all kinds of things when it comes to money. Because money is powerful. The lure of money is powerful. I mean, just think about how, how much sleep you have lost because of thinking about money. Think about relationships that have been lost because of money. People who didn't give money to you that you thought they should have given to you. Well, they should, they should have paid for that, Josh. They, that's what parents do. And yes, maybe they should have. And yet, that is the power of money. That's the power of money. And do you see then how a church and Christians who can view money in a different way could be powerful in a culture? the opportunity that can come. And so Paul wants Timothy and he wants us to get money right when it comes to our faith. So he says in verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not material gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. 
But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And, and so we get this idea then that the false teachers are, are ones who are talking about money and viewing it in a way that Paul and the writers of the New Testament would say, go against the teaching and the kingdom values of Jesus. And think about it. He says that it leads, they've pierced themselves with many griefs. That's what money does when we handle it wrong. I mean, how many times have you bought something and immediately thought, man, I should not have bought this? A lot. A lot. And then you're like, how, can, can we send it back? Can, like, how can I get out of this? And, and those bad decisions lead to so many griefs. But he says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Now, here's the thing. He could have said that there is great gain in godliness with all kinds of things. But contentment is something that we're not very good at. We know that being content is better than being discontent, right? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ruined a moment, ruined a party, a dinner, a vacation because of being discontent? I have. I have. When people just didn't get their act together and do what I thought they should do, I ruined it. And you have too. What gain do we experience in life with contentment? I mean, just think for a moment, that thing you ruined, that, that moment, that party, that Christmas dinner, okay? What if you could go back and be content in that moment instead of discontent? Do you see the power of contentment? Contentment's powerful. And it's not just telling your kid, be thankful for what you have, Yes, I know you didn't get, you know, the PS17 that's coming out and pre-ordered, like, I know you only have the PS11, you know, like, but we do the same thing. I mean, think, there's probably been a Christmas, and maybe this Christmas morning coming up, you're going to open a gift and go, oh. <laughs> so I'm obviously not your favorite. But what if you were content and said, man, thanks so much for giving me something. Do you see the difference? And then you walk away and you have a white elephant gift for your next office Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> but contentment covers a lot in our lives. And Paul says if we're not content, it leads to a trap. It leads to a trap. And that trap could be the comparison trap. And that's a big trap. And that, that kills contentment. As we compare our houses, we compare our careers, we compare, oh, you know, like that person's kitchen, and we compare this and we compare that. It could be the, the trap, the temptation to go into debt, to not save and be wise. It could be that trap, to not plan ahead. The Bible says a lot about planning ahead. The Bible says a lot about the wisdom of planning ahead. It could be the temptation to be a workaholic and miss relationships. I mean, that's a trap. It could be the trap to be angry at God at your financial decision when God didn't make those decisions. I mean, that's a trap. It could be the trap to lay in bed and worry about finances instead of trusting God. That's a trap. 
And so the question is, how do, how do we get there? How do we fall into that? And we fall into that, Paul says, with the love of money. Now, you've probably heard it said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You heard that? That's actually not in the Bible. Paul does not say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Paul says the love of money is a root of evil. See, money in and of itself is not evil. Money in and of itself is not bad. Wanting and desiring to have a house, to take care of your family, to enjoy a great vacation, to have that dream kitchen, that's not bad. But when those things get your heart, that's when it becomes evil. Craving money leads to all kinds of destruction. And you've seen this in your life. I mean, we've talked about it already. Decisions you wish you could undo. The chasing after that you go after. And so, how do we get to contentment? If you're taking notes, you can write this down, that generosity is the first step to contentment. It is. Generosity is the first step to contentment. Generosity is the first step to contentment. And Paul tells us how to handle our riches. He says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in the present age, which is us, because we've already said we're, we're rich in the present age, <clears throat> not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And so Paul says, put your hope in God, not in the uncertainty of wealth. Now, if we were sitting, let's just pretend for a moment, we're all sitting in our small groups this week and we're talking about the sermon. And your small group leader, this isn't a question, so don't worry, this isn't gonna happen in your group this week. But your group leader says, okay, by a show of hands, how many of you put your hope in money or God? Now all of you would just go, oh, I put my hope in God. That's why I'm here. You would scoff at that question. And yet, when was the last time that money kept you up? When was the last time the money caused you stress? When was the last time that you got really angry at the markets? When was the last time that you saw your retirement and went, oh. When was the last time that you got really angry at people in Washington for decisions that they made with your money? But, do you see? It's easy for us to put our hope in the uncertainty of wealth. And I love that Paul says the uncertainty of wealth because wealth is very, very uncertain. And yet, many of us very easily put our hope in wealth instead of God. And so Paul says, here's how to put our hope in God. Here's how we do it. He says in verse 18, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and willing to share. That putting our hope in God is to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. To do what is good, to be rich in good works by being generous and willing to share. Now, that word generous, I think is actually just as hard to pin down and define as being rich. Because in the same way that you and I would say that we're not rich because we don't have what the other person has or what we think we should have or we don't have what we thought we'd have at this point in life, if I were to ask you if you're generous, you'd probably be like, well, yeah, I'm generous. Well, how do you know? Well, I'm gener more generous than my coworker. 
I'm definitely more generous than my spouse. So for sure, you should ask them if they're generous. They'll say no. So. But being generous for many of us is about comparing ourselves. Now, I will be the first one to tell you, if you were to ask Katie and I or any of our kids, which one is the more generous of the two? It's for sure me. It's not. Now, here's how I know, okay? So when we first got married, now Kate, Katie... Katie's like giving away, all, she's giving away cars to people, like, I mean, and, and one time when we gave a car to her brother, uh, just to bless him, we had two cars, we were brand new married, and she's like, we don't need two cars, and I'm like, well, we kind of, it'd be nice to have two cars, because it'd be nice, you know? She made me give him the keys to the car, I didn't want to do it at all, and so when we first get married, and, you know, we actually had an argument, this is actually embarrassing to say, we had an argument about giving back to God at church. And I told her, I don't want to do that. We have debt. We have school loans. We have things to take care of. I, I said, we'll, we'll get out of debt, and then we'll give back to God. I mean, you, there's a good chance you've thought that, too. I've heard tons of people say this to me over the years. Josh, once I get my act together financially, then I'll be generous. So we're starting a marriage. This is the, this is the tension that we have. And maybe you have this tension in your marriage. Maybe you've experienced this. And so I started going to seminary. I'm getting my master's. And our prayer was that we would get through seminary and be able to pay for it out of pocket without going into any debt. And I thought, this is a great, this is a great plan, a great prayer. We you know, laid out our finances on our Excel spreadsheet and everything like that. And we, you know, every night as we're praying together, we just say, God, you know, help us to get through seminary without any more debt. And I remember I got done, and I, and I felt really good about this prayer. I felt really good about our plan. And so afterwards one night, Katie just looks at me, and she goes, Josh, I don't know why you think God is going to answer this prayer and be involved in this when you don't have any desire to involve him in our finances. And she just rolled over and went to sleep. <laughs> around the same time, around the same time, if you remember years ago, you know, decades ago, Rick Warren had written a book called The Purpose Driven Life that sold tens of millions of copies. He made hundreds of millions of dollars. And he talked about how he reversed tithe, how he gave away over 90% of his income. And I remember reading this article and I thought, man, God, what a great problem to have. Like, if you could like, man, give me that opportunity. And in my spirit, I just this feeling from the Holy Spirit saying, you literally don't even give a cent. <laughs> and you think you're gonna give away 90% of your income. And it was hard because... I really like security, and I really like to be able to control my finances, and I really didn't want to trust God with that. I wanted to trust God with everything else in my life, but not this. And in that moment, if you were to ask me, I mean, I was going to seminary. I was training to be a pastor, and you say, Josh, do you put your hope in wealth or God? I would be like, it's clearly Jesus. But my actions told a drastically different story. And I remember, so then as we started to move forward, we started to give back to God. Katie would write the check. This was, you remember checks, so if you're, you know, a student, checks were a piece of paper, you tore them off and everything. It was, um, you had to have handwriting skills and all that. And I remember as we would go to church, Katie would give it to me to, to put into the, the giving box and the offering plates. And I, it, was, it was so hard every week. Every time I'd go in, I was like, 
I would wait till the last possible moment. Okay, there were times that I was like, oh, I just, I just totally forgot to take this thing burning a hole in my pocket and put it away. I to- you know, but slowly, slowly, we made a practice of it. Slowly, we started to make it a priority. Slowly, we started to loosen our grip on those things. And over the years, and this is what I want to encourage you to do, over the years, we began to see that generosity, biblical generosity, giving back to God has four components to it. It's worshipful, it's proportional, it's sacrificial, and it's intentional. The generosity, as we see in the New Testament, generosity is worshipful, proportional, sacrificial, and intentional. The first thing is it's worship. Generosity is a step and an act of worship. Every time you and I are generous, we are worshiping. Every time we give things away, every time we bless somebody else with our time, talents, and treasure, we are worshiping and saying God owns everything. That's what Paul says. We brought nothing into the world. God owns everything. God entrusted it to you. And does, has God entrusted everything to you that he, you think he should entrust to you? Maybe, probably not. But he has entrusted those things to you. And this is why Jesus told the different parables of the talents and how he's entrusted us. Some of you and, and, and me, some of us, we get, we get one, we get two, we get five. For whatever reason, God doesn't entrust all of us with what we want. But yet, when we're generous, it is an act of worship. And I would say this, and when we're stingy, it is also an act of worship. Because we're saying, no, no, that's mine. And I have a better plan. Just like I sat there on our bed and said, we will give back to God and we will worship him once we get our financial house in order. And how many times do we say those things? God, if you do this, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. God, if you like give me this, like I'll just be more generous. I'll give so much more away. Uh, people will be blown away by how much I give away. I wonder how many times God goes, okay. I mean, I'm sure he did that when I said that. The next thing it is, is proportional. The word tithe in the New Testament and throughout scripture means 10th, which is where we get the idea of giving 10% back to God. If you look through the Old Testament, uh, the, the tithe that God actually called the people of God to was actually closer to 26%. But when we move forward with generosity, it's supposed to be proportional. Meaning, what is proportional for you maybe isn't proportional for another person. Okay? So for Katie and I, one of the things we do each year is just talk through how we want to up our giving. And we, and we pray through, okay, what is it that God's calling us to in this next year? How do we be more generous? Here's what came out of that whole season of, of just prayer. One of our five family values, if you come into our dining room, there's a mirror up on our dining room that has our family mission statement, and one of our family values is generosity. And it came out of that season. Now, if we would have made our family mission statement 20 years ago when I was trying to go to seminary and pay for it and did not involve God at all, generosity would not have been one of the values of our family. And yet, we have just seen God move in just powerful ways. And not in ways where, you know, we gave God $100 and he gave us $1,000. You know, there are stories like that and they're incredible. And, and I'm always like, man, that just never happens to me. You know, but if it happens to you, that's great. But for us, we've just seen God provide. We've just seen God be faithful. We've just seen God move through other people. Like right after, here's a crazy story. Right after we made this decision to start giving, um, we... One of our cars broke down and we couldn't afford to fix it. And so it was literally, uh, you know, we're, we're driving one car and 
and we're talking to our neighbors the one day, and they're like, hey, like, where's your other car at? You know, I thought you had this other car. And we're like, oh, yeah, it's in the shop. You know, and they're like, oh, it's, it's like, it's been in the shop for a while. I'm like, well, yeah, like, we can't afford to fix it yet, so it's just sitting there. And, and he goes, well, how much is it going to cost to fix? I said, it's like $800, which for us was like, it was massive, you know, for us as we're going to school. He walks inside, comes out, and he hands me a check. And he goes, this, this should cover it. If it's, if it's more than that, just let me know, and I'll, I'll write you another check. I was like, what? But that's what starts to happen, is we start to see God provide. And proportion is what we're called to. And so, for you, maybe you go, you know what? I can give this because it's proportional to what I have and what I make. Now, here's the thing about generosity as we're talking about it connected to contentment. I mean, think for a moment. Have you ever met somebody who is generous and miserable? No. No, you haven't. You've met lots of people who are not generous and miserable. And here's the thing. The reason that the New Testament talks about proportion is because generosity really has very little to do with wealth. Some of the most generous people that I have seen over my lifetime are some of the poorest financially. But they hold things loosely. And some of the stingiest, least generous people have the most. The next thing, it's worshipful, proportional, and sacrificial. Okay? It's sacrificial. Giving should stretch us. It should, there should be a little bit of like, ooh. It's not because we're just giving away our has-beens and leftovers, but we're giving away first. And worship is an act of sacrifice, we're told throughout Scripture. And so generosity should hurt a little bit. It should push us a little bit. It should challenge us, make us uncomfortable. I love what Pastor Andy Stanley said. He says, giving 10% makes many people uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable, but then so is a colonoscopy, and those save countless lives. <laughs> so being uncomfortable isn't always bad. And so as you think about your, about your giving, your generosity, is it worshipful? Is it an act of worship? Are you showing that you are putting your hope in God and not the uncertainty of wealth? Is it proportional to what you have, to what God has given to you? And is it sacrificial? Is it pushing you a little bit? If you are comfortable in your generosity, if you are comfortable in the amount that you're giving, then I would say it's not pushing into sacrificial. This is why each time you get a raise, you have to go, okay, God, how, how do I need to be more generous? Every time you have more time, so it, you know, when you hit those empty nest years and those retirement years and you have a little bit more time, but maybe you don't have as much energy as you used to, but you have more time, you go, okay, how do I use my time as worship? Each season, we're to be asking these questions. And the last one is to be intentional. To be intentional. This means you plan your generosity. It's not an accident. 2 Corinthians 9, when Paul's talking about generosity, he says that each person should decide ahead of time in his heart what to give. And this is why for Katie and I, we, we give just automatically because we decide ahead of time. Every, every month, it just comes out. We decide ahead of time. And so is your giving, is your generosity, is it worshipful, proportional, sacrificial, and intentional? And as you look at these four words, and if you check the next step box on your Connect card tomorrow, I'll send you an email with a little bit more information about these four and how they play out in our lives. But as you look at these four words, which one is the one that you're struggling with right now? Which one is, are you struggling with right now? 
Maybe for you, you go, you know what, like, my giving, my generosity, it, it just happens. There's no plan to it, there's no rhyme or reason to it, it's just Tuesday. So maybe for you, you need to be a little bit more intentional. You need to go, okay, what's my actual plan to honor God and trust God with my finances? What's my actual plan? Maybe for you, it's not proportional. Maybe for you, it's not sacrificial at all. It doesn't hurt at all. You've never given away anything that you held dear to you. Is it sacrificial? Because I think, again, when we place our hope in God instead of the uncertainty of riches, Paul says there's so much freedom waiting. There's so much freedom waiting. And imagine a group of people in a culture that just pushes for more and more and more. Imagine a group of people at church that said, we just wanna hold things loosely to bless those around us. That would be irresistible. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have entrusted us with what you have entrusted us with. And I know some of us would like to be entrusted with more. And I pray that you would help us to grow in those places to show that we can be entrusted with all the things we'd like to be entrusted with. But some of us right now are in this place where we need to, to, to take those steps of honoring you, to learning what does it mean to worship you with our finances, to begin giving back on a regular, intentional basis. And so God, I pray that we would take that step, that we would begin to place our hope in you instead of the uncertainty of wealth. And we would see God, how you want to move through our generosity. And I pray that as we start into this season of giving, of just being able to bless our community and those around us, the organizations that we're gonna be partnering with, I pray that you would move through our generosity to bring not only the good news of Jesus to our hurting world, but to bring your kingdom to this place. In your name.